The Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. This podcast is supported by VEPLA, the Victorian Planning Environmental Law Association. You're listening to PX72 today. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Peter Jewell. One of the silver linings to COVID for our podcast is that it's gave, it's given us the push that we needed to start utilising technology such as Zoom and Teams to interview those from interstate and even internationally. And we've had the pleasure of interviewing, I think, at least one international guest um, through this period. We have um, fairly grand plans of involving planners from states of all across Australia in the interim and later, who knows. So today we're thrilled to be going north and talking with Peter Charles from Brisbane Town Planners. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for having me. Now, Peter, we first came across you via YouTube. And I don't know any other planners who've gone viral on YouTube, so you seem to have the market advantage there. <laughs> it's a little bit of a different approach, I'll admit that. <laughs> <laughs> could, you, um, could you give our listeners just a bit of an introduction and background and, and perhaps a little bit about your career path to date? Oh, okay. So, I'm always jealous of like architects and builders who have a really romantic, interesting story about their journey because unfortunately mine is not interesting. It's far from it. So yeah, you talk to architects and they're like, oh, I used to sit there and build with Lego blocks and build these amazing houses. So I was destined to go down this path or builders that sit there and just go, oh yeah, I was brought up on my dad's um, construction site. So I was just born to do this profession. Whereas to be totally honest for me, I just completely fell into town planning. So it sort of came to the night before I had to put my uni preferences into the system and I literally played a game of any mini money mo. I had every intention of going back later on and adjusting my preferences and taking it more seriously, but I didn't quite get around to it. And next thing I knew, I got offered this thing called town planning. So I went, you know what, why not? Let's just give it a shot. So four years later, I graduated, went to work for Brisbane City Council, which I am so, so, so incredibly grateful for because it gave me a really good insight into what happens on the other side of the fence. So you get a better understanding and appreciation for the pressures that drive them or the decisions that they have to make on their side and therefore you can adjust your behaviour to sort of suit that. So, yeah, worked with council for a little while and then I got poached by a private firm, worked with them for about seven years and then decided to take the plunge and start my own business. So that's what's brought me to where I am today. And Peter, you, you set up Brisbane Town Planning Consultancy. What was your motivation? And, and also your web profile states that at Brisbane Town Planning, quote, we take pride in knowing that we aren't a traditional stiff lawyer like town planning firm. <laughs> yep. You, you, so you've injected op, open and dare and enthusiasm into the business. How does this And can work? I just say it really needed it. So well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, and so... I mean that, that that's a terrific um, enthusiasm. How how do you how do you battle the inevitable disappointments in consultancy? I, I I know them only too well. But also, what was the what was the idea behind your business? Man, so many questions there. Okay, so let's go back a step. For me, there's probably two drivers behind starting my business. I had gone through a year of personal growth where I'd really been trying to challenge myself. I'd been focusing somewhat on physical sort of challenges. So to give you a few examples, I did the Kokoda track in Papua New Guinea with only a few months training. 
I abseiled off a skyscraper for charity. I attempted to walk 24 hours nonstop in a fat suit on a treadmill for charity. Like I'd just done all of these, <laughs> let's admit, stupid physical challenges. And you just I rewind a minute. What was that on in a fat suit on a treadmill? <laughs> yeah, attempted. And I do say the word attempted because unfortunately I failed. <laughs> um, but I attempted to walk 24 hours nonstop on, on a treadmill in a fat suit and it was the fat suit that got me in the end and I overheated uh, for charity. So to raise money for Alzheimer's Australia, basically. So, yeah, I'd gone through that whole year of really testing my physical boundaries and I got to the end and I still felt like there was something missing. And it hit me, I realised I'd challenged myself physically, but I hadn't worked out what I was capable of mentally, uh, where my physical, or sorry, where my mental sort of barriers lay. So I thought, you know what, what better way of challenging myself mentally than starting my own business? I mean, I've got no business knowledge, I've got no money behind me, I've got no sort of backup plan sort of thing. So let's just jump in the deep end. Because when you're a business owner, you're accountable for everything. It, the buck stops with you. So you've really got to stand up and be accountable and push yourself and challenge yourself. So that was probably the first main driver was just wanting to see what I was capable of mentally. But then the second thing is I'm obsessed and I say it in a positive way, but obsessed with innovation and challenging expectations. And when you're working under someone else, there's only so much you can experiment with um, because at the end of the day, you're putting their name on the line and they're at risk. So, but when you're in your own business, that sort of falls on you. So it gives you a bit more power to sort of try new things, new ideas. So I thought, yep, if I start my own business, it gives me that ability to just try and shake things up, challenge people's expectations, do new things, all of that sort of stuff. Amazing. Um, so as, as I mentioned before in the introduction, you've developed and continue to expand a fairly extensive YouTube channel, um, which, as Pete mentioned earlier, um, you know, has definitely injected an open and dare kind of approach into planning. Um, What's, what, what was the driver, I guess, behind doing a YouTube channel dealing with town planning issues? I mean, a lot of people would question how popular that would be. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously it's working for you. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that's gone down a totally different path to what I expected in the first instance. So if we go back to what I said before, I'm obsessed with innovation, efficiency, all of those sorts of things. And I found we were getting the same questions over and over again. So everyone was asking the same sort of things. And I was typing out these massive, long responses to people. Number one, it was a drain on my time, which then naturally meant I was shortcutting things. So cutting corners, I was making mistakes. But also for the receiver's side, it was a bucket load of information for them to process. And it wasn't in a form that was readily or easily processed. So I set about trying to find a new way to communicate with people and educate people. So stumbled across the whole video concept and started creating videos to answer my most frequently asked questions. Did that and then I thought, you know what, I've got this content, why don't I just do something with it? Why don't I upload it to all the social platforms? So we started with Facebook and then obviously went, okay, well, why not just add it to YouTube and start with Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in the beginning, it was a bit of a side project. I just went, oh, what the heck, we'll throw it up there, see what happens. But it is just absolutely snowballed. So I think over the last two and a bit years on Facebook in particular, we're over 310,000 views, which I think is just ridiculous because we're talking about rules and regulations for a small, let's call it country town, Brisbane. <laughs> it's not exactly that video. It's not the most exciting thing for people. But it's just for some reason it's grabbed people, which I obviously really love. Definitely. And, and are you finding that you're getting um, quite a lot of work? You know, has it been a work source for you? 
No. So I didn't start, as I said before, I didn't start out for it to be a marketing tool. Um, it's had a lot of unintended benefits for me. So number one, it speeds me up. My emails when I send to people now, it's just referencing a series of videos that they can go and educate themselves with. So it helps to speed me up. It helps to reduce errors. It's definitely a brand awareness thing, but I wouldn't say it's a direct marketing tool. It helps build the credibility out there. Um, and it helps to just build the knowledge and in the awareness about the industry. That's probably the biggest benefit I get these days out of it. Peter, it's fantastic. I, I love your YouTube uh, videos and it's very they're very informative. Um, you simplify things and you sort of give do's and don'ts as well. Um, so it's 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 like speak it's like you're in a conversation that uh, even though it's a one way conversation but I, I found them terrific and it's a bit like our podcast um, Jess I mean we don't do this for marketing or anything but it, it it's great when people you know Peter when people say to you oh you know I saw you saw your YouTube video or you know people listen to the podcast it's it's just helping the profession a bit I think in a humble way yeah. And for me, I like you look at our view account on Facebook or any of the platforms and it's nothing crazy. It's nothing to be excited about, I guess you'd say. But I find these days, not a month goes past where I don't get approached by someone just randomly in the street. So an example I had just the other week, I was out to breakfast with my mum and I was holding her dog and this lady comes up to me and says, I have to ask you a question. And I thought she was going to ask me about the dog. And she goes, are you the town planner from Facebook? And then I just started laughing and said, yeah, actually, that is me. And she just, her face lit up with a massive smile, which is what I absolutely love because it shows I'm having an impact on people. And that impact might be just having them laugh at me because if I don't know how far back you've gone in the videos, but some of the videos, I will wear costumes. I will wear fat suits and just make fun of myself. So if they're getting a laugh out of that, great. But better still, if I can help spread the knowledge and the awareness about town planning as a profession, that's just so great. Well, I just well, love that, that goes to... You helping out, you providing information, and in in a in a in an accessible way helps the councils, helps everyone. I would have thought helps builders, helps designers. So the audience is is it just helps the whole everyone get on and understand things. And that's yeah, that's it. Having worked in council, I understand the red tape that they're bound by. So legally, they're very. What am I trying to say here? They're held back a lot by what they can actually say, how much information they can put out there, all of that sort of stuff. So whereas I obviously don't have the same level of restrictions on me as a private corporation or a private business. So that gives me the ability to sort of spread the awareness, the knowledge, and help avoid all of that frustration out there. I think if you understand the why behind something, the reason why councils make your decision, it helps to remove a lot of the frustration and anger that people feel towards council. I, I get that, Peter. And also, there's a council down here called Bayside City Council, and they're a pretty conservative mob, but they've got a series of videos explaining the planning process. Now, it is a very safe approach. You know, you would expect it from the council, but it's like public notice, what's involved, what you should have with an application. And it, it's just a terrific education that, people get to understand what's involved. So, Yeah, and I think we need to appreciate that in this day and age, gone are the days where people just blindly trust professionals. Everyone knows how to access information these days and they want to inform themselves and they want to be educated before they start handing over their money. So people are looking for that information these days. So it's a good thing that council, the one you mentioned there, is starting to put those videos out. 
And so, Peter, what do you think is holding the industry back in embracing um, other new types of communication and, and fresh approaches like the um, Brisbane Town Planning approaches? Oh, tough question. <laughs> I don't think anyone's quite as crazy as I am. No, I, I think planning as a whole is a very traditional industry. So it's one that has very old school sort of ways of doing things. And people, I think, still hold on to that belief that you need to be serious to be seen as professional and therefore for people to trust you with their money and all that sort of stuff. And I totally agree that that's the way it used to be. And I think there's definitely people out there these days that still hold that belief. However, I think there's still there's this growing number of people out there that do want to see change and do want to feel more. They want that humanised interaction. Um, so I think it will change. I think, like I've even seen here in Brisbane, there are some people starting to get on the social media bandwagon, do their own versions of videos, all of that sort of stuff. So it is changing, but I think that traditional mindset is holding people back. It's probably going to take the older generation retiring and more young blood coming in for it to really snowball. But, yeah, it's exciting. It is happening. And, Peter, let's talk about Charlie. Can you explain to our listeners about Charlie? (laughs) Charlie. Okay, so, again, we go back to one of my drivers is efficiency. So we hit a point probably about two years ago where I was just really struggling with the volume of inquiries that we were getting. So naturally, when you start to put yourself out there on social media, people come to you with questions. So I was struggling with the volume of inquiries coming through. The videos were helping, but I still need to find something else to do to help alleviate that pressure. So that was first or the first and foremost driver was, okay, how do we speed up my processes? But also the other struggle I was having at the same time is people felt, especially industry professionals like designers and architects, felt like they were a burden by coming to me and asking me questions before they started the design process. And I was just ripping my hair out, trying to get the message through to people that it was so much less painful if you asked questions about the site up front. Um, and that I, yeah, basically what I was dealing with was everyone was getting through the full design process. The clients were emotionally connected and financially connected to these designs. And then they were coming to me and I was having to be the big man, Amini, the bad guy that was crushing their hopes and dreams and saying it's not going to be approved. So as a way to try and go back to speeding up my processes but also breaking down the barriers to hopefully getting more people asking more questions up front, I created what we nicknamed Charlie, uh, which is essentially just an automated site information tool. So this thing still blows my mind what we've been able to create, but essentially you go into the little pop-up, you type in the property address, And then it opens up something like 19 different browsers. Now it searches for the site within each one of those browsers. So it could be the Brisbane City Council's interactive mapping system. It could be the state government referral system. It could be the easement system. Whatever system it is, it goes through and searches for these properties. Then what it does is it waits for the information to load and it takes screenshots of the images that are brought up. It also extracts the information out of those browsers and it compiles it into a single PDF document for me. So that then comes to me. So when someone asks a question about a property, I can scan that. I've got all of the information in front of me, which speeds up my processes and helps me reduce my human error. But then also it, yeah, because I can sit there and say, hey, it's a computer program that's done it. People feel less bad about asking questions. So yeah, it came about to speed myself up, reduce errors, and just to encourage people to ask more questions up front so there's less tears for everyone at the end of the process. Peter, what's your website? Could you say it slowly so people can look at your website and yeah. and, and see so, that little Japanese type looking, <laughs> very Japanese, Peter, that Charlie looks. 
Yeah, it does. You mentioned that and I was like, that's so true. <laughs> it wasn't the look we were going for, but I can see it. <laughs> uh, so our website is Brisbane, B-R-I-S-B-A-N-E, T-P, Town Planning.com.au. So as you suggested, if you go on there, we talk about Charlie and, yeah, you can get some more information there. Yeah, that's fantastic. We've got a, a very similar system that we use um, at the company I work at, Tract in Melbourne, um, which is across a couple of different states now as well, but um, called OneMap, and that's completely changed the way in which we work um, in a very, very similar vein. You know, you type your address in and it kind of gives you all the planning controls that you need, but it just makes it really, really simple when you do get a client that calls you, um, you know, just with a quick question about, you know, what do you think of this site? It means you can just have a five, 10-minute conversation as opposed to having to write, you know, two hours worth of advice and, you know, and actually go and find all that information, which I think probably similar to Queensland, that information is spread across so many different websites, so many different browsers, and there's so much room for error. So I think it's a fantastic, fantastic tool that you've created. And that's everyone always says they're so scared of computers taking over the world and taking people's jobs. I don't see the computer programs working that way. I see them as supporting us to do, to add value to our customer service. So what you just talked about there, instead of you running around gathering that information, it allows you to stop and provide more service to the customer. So it's going to add value rather than taking away jobs. 100%. Couldn't agree more. So, um, Peter, just to our non-Queensland listeners, can you talk around the planning administration in Brisbane? Obviously, there's only the one authority. What are the advantages and disadvantages in a broad sense? Because I guess as a comparison to Victoria, I think we've got, Pete, you're probably testing me on the numbers We've got about 20 councils in the Melbourne metro area, Yeah, and I think think about 79 in the state. That just blows my mind. Like off the top of my head, I think Brisbane City Council is the largest local government authority in the Southern Hemisphere or something like that. that So we're huge, but I cannot possibly imagine how it would operate any other way. So for us, we have one set of rules, but I think it's one thing to be able to read those rules on a page. It's to know, it's another thing to know how council is interpreting those rules at that point in time. And within Brisbane City Council, those interpretations change sometimes on a weekly basis. So for me to get my head around those rules alone is a massive task. I can't imagine having to do it over multiple councils. I just, I don't know how you do it. <laughs> well, well, there used to be there used to be like 280, almost 280 oh, councils in out. Victoria. <laughs> and uh, there was like 55, I think, or 52. Jess, you weren't probably born when this happened in the 90s, but um, there was amalgamations uh, back in the early 90s and because we just basically had to, but... Yeah, it's interesting, Peter. What um, so you find the big council is a good thing um, for working? Tough question. It's it's obviously with everything in life, you're going to have pros and cons. You're never going to get a perfect system. That's just impossible to achieve. I think it's good because it makes it easier to work as a planner, and therefore it reduces the amount of red tape, makes it more accessible, all of those sorts of things. But on the flip side, I guess being so big. They've got to be so regimented and black and white in their approach to everything to keep the consistency across the board and therefore to avoid being accused of blackmail or dodgy deals or all that sort of stuff. So it does step away from that whole site-specific approach. You, you find you don't have that flexibility to really dig down and create the best outcome for that individual property. Because the rules are and what about local character too, Peter? What about you know different areas having different characters and 
not not one answer, one size fits all. Yeah, and unfortunately at the moment the planning scheme is set up in a way to encourage that one size fits all um, approach. They Council, I'll 100% give them credit, they're trying to change that, trying to create more individual rules that acknowledge different time periods of character, all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, you do still have that one blanket scheme that covers the whole city. Thank you to Song Bowden planners who offer excellent personalised service. Call Dave Song or Dan Bowden through details on our website. Also, we thank Victorian Planning Reports, our very first supporter. If you want the A to Z of planning decisions in Victoria and excellent editorials, please get yourself a subscription to the VPRs. Details on our website. This podcast is supported by our wonderful friends at One Mile Grid. One Mile Grid is a boutique consulting firm which offers traffic and transport engineering, transport planning and waste management services. You can find out more by visiting their website at www.onemilegrid.com.au. And Peter, what um, what aspects of the planning world, I mean, you've outlined some of them, disappoint or frustrate you? I, I'd find it hard to sit here and say anything disappoints or frustrates me because I flip that around. I tend to take a very positive approach to life and things and I go, it's more of an opportunity. So nothing's ever a problem, it's just an opportunity. So, yeah, the amount of red tape, the old school mindset or traditional mindset that's prevalent in the industry all of those things are positives, not negatives, because it's an opportunity for me to challenge the way people think and do things. So I don't think I necessarily can answer that question. <laughs> That's a very good answer. I like it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and so, Peter, um, Queensland continues to grow. Obviously, it's a permanent destination for lifestyle. Um, obviously, probably current situations probably um, changing that a little bit at the moment. But um, what lessons have been learned and acted on in a planning sense over the last 20 or so years? 20 or so odd years in Queensland? Oh, planning, I guess it's the same across the world. Planning is a very dynamic thing. It's never going to be perfect. It's constantly evolving. We're constantly learning from our previous, I wouldn't call them mistakes necessarily, but the, the things we've done in the past, we evolve from. So we're at this point in time, I'd say within Brisbane in particular, there is a massive push to be able to preserve some of our more historic buildings. So it's laughable for people around the world when we sit here and say our heritage buildings are essentially anything over 100 years old because everyone sits there and goes, what, you consider that heritage? (laughs) But for us, we're starting to value those older houses and starting to try and preserve more of those older houses. And the drive behind that is actually the community. So the community stood up and said, hey, we want to, we see a sense of identity tied to these buildings. We want to see them preserved for future generations going forward. So there's been a big push towards that. We've also seen a big push towards preserving the iconic Queenslander backyard. So everyone wants that tin and timber house at the front with a big backyard to play cricket in. That obviously conflicts with the increasing density pressures, affordable housing pressures, all of that sort of stuff. So we've seen big shifts in that direction. Yeah. They're probably the two. And I guess the other thing is community. So allowing the community to have more of a say to empower them to be able to be more involved in the process. That's probably a big shift we've seen. As a planner, obviously, there's definitely times where I rip my hair out and go, oh, I wish the community didn't have a say because they're not quite as educated as, they don't have the level of knowledge that they sometimes need to make decisions. But at the same time, I do think if you push past that, it is a benefit. Um, Having people involved in that process 
don't know if that answers your questions. A roundabout response, I guess. No, that's good. <laughs> no, absolutely, Peter. And the beautiful Queenslanders, uh, those houses, um, many, Peter, many Victorians uh, have a great affinity for Queensland. And, I mean, Noosa was started by Melburnians. That's why it's so ah. good. But, so, so, and it's just uh, our getaway and we haven't been able to get away there this mm. year, uh, but it's um, it, it's a wonderful time. Do you, do you think sometimes that we forget as a profession how important planning is to the importance of civil society and and how we influence the lived experience? Do you think we forget our our great responsibilities in that role? I think it depends what level you work at or what projects you work at. So for me personally, I've niched my business at the small end of the scale. So we focus just on houses, house extensions and small developments up to say 10 lot subdivisions, 10 units, all of that sort of stuff. So at this end of the spectrum, you're engaging on a daily business, a daily basis with neighbours, homeowners, all of that sort of stuff. I guess I probably also have the added benefit of the social media presence and therefore through the commentary you get back through there, you're also interacting with people. So I'd say I probably am exposed to a lot more than most planners in that regard. I think if you are working more, let's say, at the strategic planning level where you're designing the legislation or if you're working on high-rise and that sort of stuff, you probably don't see the fruits of your labour as readily and therefore don't get the feedback as quickly. So that's an interesting question actually. Yeah. Well, one to think about. I think sometimes we forget that our our, our policies and our uh, decisions and and design guidelines affect so many people. You know, there's a just there's a flow on effect from what we decide, and um, and it's a, it's a great responsibility. I think we've got also that those decisions and responsibilities are quite long term. I think you know most of the work that we do, it's going to affect people for. 20, 30 years in a lot of cases, you know, they're not short-term decisions or short-term. 100% agree with that. It's quite easy to sit behind a computer and look at something in plan form and think, yep, that's okay, it's not going to impact on anyone. It's a different story when you're living next door to these things or living in these places. Definitely. And also planners can act as conservative forces for people who are sort of inside the tent rather than people who want to come into the tent. Yeah. Sometimes you know, there's a lot of planning policies as well, well-intentioned, of course, everything, but they have knock-on consequences for housing affordability, access, education, all sorts of things. But shall we move on to COVID? <laughs> oh, no, the big, everyone's favourite topic. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and obviously, um, Peter, you're in a completely different situation to us here in Victoria. Oh, actually, you and Peter probably in a similar situation because Pete's in um, in regional Victoria, so he's got a lot more... Um, uh, flexibility yeah a lot more independence I guess you'd say than I do currently in Melbourne um, although we've now got 25 kilometers um, so you know that's that's better than the five kilometers we had a couple of weeks ago <laughs> yep <laughs> so um, what changes are you seeing in terms of planning outcomes and do you think that the changes that are being made are they going to be permanent or or not oh man there's so many things to say on this topic okay so Brisbane City Council released a heap of different initiatives in terms of fee waivers. They created a whole new team to sit there and try and fast track applications. So they've been doing everything within their powers to try and stimulate the economy or the construction industry. You add to that, obviously, the government 
just across the country has sat there and offered up $25,000 grants to people if you meet certain criteria. Those incentives that are out there at the moment are just sending the industry absolutely bonkers. Like last month for us, we tripled our normal monthly takings in terms of jobs and all of that sort of stuff. It's just gone absolutely mental. A lot of people are saying to me, councils now, the impression that's being put out there is that council is rushing a lot of decisions and because they don't obviously want to be accused of holding people back from taking advantage of these grants and the offerings that are out there. So the question that is now being raised is, is that shortcutting the process and is that going to lead to problems down the track? Obviously, we hope not, but that's one of those big unknowns. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. With with that, with COVID, um, Jess and Peter, you know, one thing about planning is it's always pushing public public transport usage and trying to get higher densities. And I suppose one consequence of COVID might be that public transport's a lot less attractive to people and proximity to green spaces might be more valuable. Thoughts? Well, it's interesting. So already we've seen shifts in the way people are designing their houses and what people are seeking um, out there in the market. So talking to buyers, agents and real estate agents, they're saying that previously people wanted to be located really close to the city because they need that accessibility to work, public transport, all that sort of stuff. But now with everyone suddenly being forced to embrace the Zoom and the various different online platforms, everyone's realising you don't necessarily need that in-person interaction all the time. So they're seeing a lot of people that are more happy to move half an hour, an hour out of the city because they know they don't need to, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They don't need to go back into the city every single day, basically. So we've seen shifts in terms of the locations that people are looking for. But we've also seen shifts in the way that people are designing their houses. So as you'd imagine, people are now going, well, we need spaces within our houses that we can do those Zoom conference calls from. So they need to be Zoom friendly. We need spaces, if we're not able to travel more than five kilometres from our home, we need spaces we can actually get exercise in. So gym areas within our houses. We need transit spaces, so transition spaces. So what I like to call mud rooms. So places where you can go in, take off your dirty clothes, take off your dirty shoes, sanitise your hands before you enter that safe zone, the house zone. Uh, other things like we're seeing people looking for bigger pantries because they don't want to have to travel to the shops as frequently as they may have previously done. Or the final example would be they're looking for freight drop-off points. So places within the front porch or somewhere on the property where a courier can turn up and drop off your online goods because everyone's obviously shifting to that whole online model rather than in-store model. So it's crazy that something has had such an impact on the way we're living in such a short period of time because, as you suggested before, just planning is a long-term thing. These changes and these decisions we're making now are going to hang around for the next 50, 100 years. So that's what I'm finding really interesting. It's a little bit like um, like mobile phones. You know, phones kind of went from really big to really small and then they're kind of getting bigger again. It's a little bit the same with with houses, I find. You know, um, 12, 18 months ago we were having discussions about tiny houses and how to facilitate approval of tiny houses and now we're sort of looking at a situation of potentially, you know, going back to sort of the, not necessarily McMansions, but looking at these much bigger footprint dwellings and what that actually means for um, society. So it's actually going to be a really interesting conversation moving forward. And and you're right, Peter. I don't know how oh, permanent it will just be. Just I'll make a and Peter, I'll make a prediction. I think within 18 months, the government is going to do a massive public education campaign, billboards, TV ads, sort of unscare people of this whole thing, because 
the scare, I mean, you know, to be frightened of COVID is one thing, but the government's probably going to find out and business is going to find out that it's wrecking the economy so badly and people are overreacting so that there's going to be a public information thing on the flip side saying, look, it's safe to do these things. It's 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 good to go out and do these things. So I'm over the camp that this is going to be all over and it's going to blow away and it's going to wreck the place, but we have to get back to the old normal, I think. I could be wrong. I am. Um- I caught a tram yesterday, Pete, which was really, really strange after six months. Yes, I love catching ghost traps. I, you know, I, I was taking film and the tram driver was waving at me because there's no one on the tram, Peter. It's pretty freaky down here. Well, it was actually quite strange. Um, it was just sort of at the end of the end of my street and I was expecting to be the only person on the tram and it was quite full. I was actually quite surprised. It was just sort of like going back into normal times to be honest <laughs> although I think the only thing that had really changed was my um my sense of balance you know you sort of uh, you know this Peter but in Melbourne you know you kind of want to avoid and obviously in the current situation you want to avoid um touching the poles or touching the um the handles or anything on trams or I do anyway and so you kind of learn this um this cat balance where you just kind of it's just you know placement of your feet or careful placement to make sure that you don't fall over and my balance was completely shot yesterday getting back on the track. <laughs> I'd completely forgotten how to do it. Now, now Peter, um, if you had six months away from your normal work to undertake a pure research project, what would it be on? Oh, so many things. I'm a strong believer that knowledge is power, so I would love six months off to go and educate myself on a particular topic. But... If I had to pick one, for me, it's probably going to be the Queenslander houses we mentioned before. So I think so little is known about why people built houses in that way, why things were done a certain way. And the people who actually built those houses and designed those houses, unfortunately, they're not, they're passing away at the moment. The generation is disappearing. So we're losing so much knowledge out there. And I would love the opportunity to go out there and try and find people who had who lived these houses back at that point in time and just get all that information out them and record it for future generations so that we can understand and appreciate our history a bit more and learn from it. Because uh, I think there's so much you can gain from understanding why things were done in the past, good and bad, and learning from that. And, um, Peter, what has surprised you most over the past 12 months? Besides COVID. <laughs> COVID? <laughs> Now, I always say to people, if you'd come to me at the end of last year or even the start of this year and said, this is what the world's going to look like, I would have thought you were loony tunes. Like, there is no way that we would be in this situation in lockdown sort of setups, changing the way we're designing houses, the way we're living, all of that sort of stuff just because of a virus. Like, that's what surprised me. But the biggest positive I've taken out of it is just seeing how resilient people are and how adaptive people are. We are... As a society, we are capable of so much more than we ever give ourselves credit for. And as bad as it sounds, I think we need experiences like this to challenge us and make us step up and step outside of our comfort zones and to really test what we are capable of. Oh, Peter, you're so much more positive than me. I think it's been a total disaster. Our liberties have been taken away. Our economies have been smashed. Um, we've been ordered around. Uh, I don't think there's anything good to come and out Pete's of this in, And Pete's all. in regional Victoria. <laughs> 
I would challenge that and say in every situation you can take, there's two different ways you can look at it, positive or negative. It's your choice how you look at something. So, yes, I could sit here and focus on all the negative things and exactly what you said, I'm not trying to dismiss those things because they are true. But you can choose to search out and dig for those positives in there. And more often than not, it's, it's the fact that you've grown, you've learned from the experience, you've come to appreciate what you like, what you don't like, all of that sort of stuff. Peter, we need to keep you around just to provide some positive energy back to Pete on occasion. Oh, that's unfair, <laughs> Jess. Look, you know I'm very positive, but, you know, the, the outrageous things that have happened and it's been like living through history here, Peter, because we've had it's been lessons from the past and, and history about how things can be um, shaped and how things can be taken away from people and businesses can be just be shut down overnight and, and you can be stopped travelling. You have to be in your house for uh, after after a certain hour. These things are. I, I know there's some positives possibly out of it, but the anguish that it's caused has just been horrendous. But let's move on. Let's move on. Ref- refresh something more positive. Refresh and relax. How do you do it, Peter? How do I do it? I do crazy physical adventures. Like <laughs> I love to just take on crazy challenges like unfortunately I haven't been able to do anything this year because of COVID but the last one I did actually was in Melbourne last year end of last year decided to do a 250k bike ride and I hadn't been on a race bike so a proper cycle bike until the day before I actually walked into a hire shop and said I've got this race tomorrow can you give me something to ride so I love just doing those things and just pushing my boundaries and just seeing what I'm capable of and I think going out there, just mentally switching off and just focusing on the physical aspect really relaxes me, which sounds a bit weird as I say it, but that's my thing. doesn't surprise me at all, Peter. (laughs) Peter, we we move to Podcast Extra where we ask our guests, and we also mentioned a few things that we've done recently that, you know, whether we've watched it or read it or uh, done something new that uh, you've really enjoyed and you think that our listeners might enjoy also. Okay, so I'm going to pick a book that I read earlier this year. So it's called, let me just turn around and look at my bookshelf to make sure I get it right. It's Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. So it's not exactly the most well-written book, but what I love is it talks about the fact that we as society are capable of so much more than we give ourselves credit for and that we ever dream to believe in. And it talks, he focuses more on the physical side of things, but I apply it mentally and physically. If you just stop and allow yourself to question what else could you do, what could you be capable of, you realise there is so much other opportunity out there and we can achieve so much more for ourselves and society. So I loved reading that book because it forced me to stop and question where was I settling in my life? What was I just selling myself short on? What could I be doing differently? How much more could I be contributing? All of those sorts of things. So, yeah, I'd recommend anyone or everyone go out and read that book. It's amazing. Mm, that's uh, Jess. What about you? What have you? What's your podcast extra? As I said earlier, I've um, exhausted Netflix. I've exhausted Stan. I even um, downloaded um, Foxtel now. I think it was called a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> and I'm done. I, I've, I've got nothing left on any of those. So I've been reading up a storm the last couple of weeks, and um, I've really got into Jane Harper. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's an Australian author. She's done quite a few different books recently, um, The Dry, Force of Nature, Survivors. I think there's a couple others. But, yeah, she's fantastic. I would highly recommend all of those and um, quite a few of them are sort of, you know, Australian-based 
um, or set in an Australian-based kind of landscape. So it's really, really nice illustrative um, kind of writing, which I really like. And um, they're all sort of mysteries, which is great. And I think I've read most of them, you know, across the course of only a couple of days, which is um, a a new record for me because I'm generally a fairly (laughs) slow reader. (laughs) What about you, Pete? Well, Jess, tennis started again last night. I've missed it so much. Peter, I play in a, a, a local comp. And okay. it was just so good to see everyone last night and the tennis gods were smiling on on my team as well. So <laughs> and it, we almost hugged each other. And some twit said, well, we'll be playing masks. And, like, you just cannot play tennis in a mask, right? So... And then everyone had to socialise and everyone was social, socially distant at the end of it. But it's just wonderful that we are not islands. We need people. And the other great thing, Jess, is my bees arrive this weekend on grand final day. Ah, fantastic. Um, listeners, we do record this and it gets published about four weeks later. So I've been waiting for these bees, Peter, for a couple of months now. And because we've had very wet weather in Victoria that we haven't been able to get them. So, And it's all happening on grand final day, Jess. Fantastic. So, Peter, you've been a marvellous guest, uh, shining light and inspiration. I love Positivity, ex- I love it. I, I love your ex- exuberance. I, not, we are both exuberant people, Jess and I, but um, you, you've just brought some Queensland sun to our lives. So <laughs> thank you so much for being part of it. And I would urge all our listeners to look at the at Brisbane Town Planning website. It's marvellous. Look up Peter on YouTube. It's fun. It's informative. It's just so 21st century. I love it. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, Jess, and thank you, Peter.